Chapter Four, Part One of Death in Venice by Thomas Mann, translated by Kenneth Burke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Day after day, now the naked god with the hot cheeks drove his fire-breathing quadriga across the expanses of the sky, and his yellow locks fluttered in the assault of the east wind. A white silk sheen stretched over the slowly simmering ponto. The sand glowed. Beneath the quaking silver blue of the ether, rust-colored canvases were spread in front of the beach bathing-houses, and the afternoons were spent in the sharply demarcated spots of shade which they cast. But it was also delightful in the evening, when the vegetation in the park had the smell of balsam and the stars were working through their courses above, and the soft persistent murmur of the sea came up enchantingly through the night. Such evenings contained the cheering promise that more sunny days of casual idleness would follow, dotted with countless closely interspersed possibilities of well-timed accidents. The guest, who was detained here by such an accommodating mishap, did not consider the return of his property as sufficient grounds for another departure. He suffered some inconvenience for two days, and had to appear for meals in the large dining-room in his travelling clothes. When the strayed luggage was finally deposited in his room again, he unpacked completely, and filled the closet and drawers with his belongings. He had decided to remain here indefinitely, content now that he could pass the hours on the beach in a silk suit and appear for dinner at his little table again in appropriate evening dress. The comfortable rhythm of this life had already cast its spell over him. He was soon enticed by the ease, the mild splendour of his programme. Indeed, what a place to be in, when the usual allurement of living in watering places on southern shores was coupled with the immediate nearness of the most wonderful of all cities. Aschenbach was not a lover of pleasure. Whenever there was some call for him to take a holiday, to indulge himself, to have a good time, and this was especially true at an earlier age, restlessness and repugnance soon drove him back to his rigorous toil, the faithful sober efforts of his daily routine. Except that this place was bewitching him, relaxing his will, making him happy. In the mornings, under the shelter of his bathing-house, letting his eyes roam dreamily in the blue of the southern sea, or on a warm night, as he leaned back against the cushions of the gondola, carrying him under the broad starry sky, home to the Lido, from the Piazza di San Marco, after long hours of idleness, and the brilliant lights, the melting notes of the serenade, were being left behind, he often recalled his place in the mountains, the scene of his battles in the summer, where the clouds blew low across his garden, and terrifying storms put out the lamps at night, and the crows which he fed were swinging in the tops of the pine trees. Then everything seemed just right to him, as though he were lifted into the Elysian fields, on the borders of the earth, where man enjoys the easiest life where there is no snow or winter, no storms and pouring rains, but where Oceanus continually sends forth gentle cooling breezes, and the days pass in a blessed inactivity without work, devoted wholly to the sun and to the feast days of the sun. 
Aschenbach saw the boy Tadzio frequently, almost constantly. Owing to the limited range of territory, and the regularity of their lives, the beauty was near him at short intervals throughout the day. He saw him, met him, everywhere. In the lower rooms of the hotel, on the cooling water trips to the city, and back, in the arcades of the square, and at times, when he was especially lucky, ran across him on the streets. But principally, and with the most gratifying regularity, the forenoon on the beach allowed him to admire and study this rare spectacle at his leisure. Yes, it was this guarantee of happiness, this daily recurrence of good fortune, which made his stay here so precious, and gave him such pleasure in the constant procession of sunny days. He was up as early as he used to be when under the driving pressure of work, and was on the beach before most people, when the sun was still mild and the sea lay blinding white in the dreaminess of morning. He spoke amiably to the guard of the private beach, and also spoke familiarly to the barefoot, white-bearded old man who had prepared his place for him, stretching the brown canopy and bringing the furniture of the cabin out on the platform. Then he took his seat. There would now be three or four hours in which the sun mounted and gained terrific strength, the sea a deeper and deeper blue, and he might look at Tadzio. He saw him approaching from the left, along the edge of the sea. He saw him as he stepped out backwards from among the cabins. Or he would suddenly find, with a shock of pleasure, that he had missed his coming, that he was already here in the blue and white bathing suit, which was his only garment now, while on the beach, that he had already commenced his usual activities in the sun and the sand a pleasantly trifling, idle, and unstable manner of living, a mixture of rest and play. Tadzio would saunter about, wade, dig, catch things, lie down, go for a swim, all the while being kept under surveillance by the women on the platform, who made his name ring out in their falsetto voices, Tadzio, Tadzio. Then he would come running to them with a look of eagerness to tell them what he had seen, what he had experienced, or to show them what he had found or caught, mussels, seahorses, jellyfish, and crabs that ran sideways. Aschenbach did not understand a word he said, and though it might have been the most ordinary thing in the world, it was a vague harmony in his ear. So the foreignness of the boy's speech turned it into music. A wanton sun poured its prodigal splendor down over him, and his figure was always set off against the background of an intense blue. This piquant body was so freely exhibited that his eyes soon knew every line and posture. He was continually rediscovering with new pleasure all this familiar beauty, and his astonishment at its delicate appeal to his senses was unending. The boy was called to greet a guest who was paying his respects to the ladies at the bathing-house. He came running, running wet perhaps out of the water, tossed back his curls, and as he held out his hand, resting on one leg and raising his other foot on the toes, the set of his body was delightful. It had a charming expectancy about it, a well-meaning shyness, a winsomeness which showed his aristocratic training. He lay stretched full length, 
his bath towel slung across his shoulders his delicately chiselled arm supported in the sand his chin in his palm the boy called joshu was squatting near him and making up to him and nothing could be more enchanting than the smile of his eyes and lips when the leader glanced up at his inferior his servant he stood on the edge of the sea alone apart from his people quite near to aschenbach erect his hands locked across the back of his neck he swayed slowly on the balls of his feet looked dreamily into the blueness of sea and sky while tiny waves rolled up and bathed his feet his honey-coloured hair clung in rings about his neck and temples the sun made the down on his back glitter the fine etching of the ribs the symmetry of the chest were emphasized by the tightness of the suit across the buttocks his armpits were still as smooth as those of a statue the hollows of his knees glistened and their bluish veins made his body seem built of some clearer stuff what rigour what precision of thought were expressed in this erect youthfully perfect body yet the pure and strenuous will which darkly at work could bring such godlike sculpture to the light was not he the artist familiar with this did it not operate in him too when he under the press of frugal passions would free from the marble mass of speech some slender form which he had seen in the mind and which he put before his fellows as a statue and a mirror of intellectual beauty statue and mirror his eyes took in the noble form there bordered with blue and with a rush of enthusiasm he felt that in this spectacle he was catching the beautiful itself form as the thought of god the one pure perfection which lives in the mind and which in this symbol and likeness had been placed here quietly and simply as an object of devotion that was drunkenness and eagerly without thinking the aging artist welcomed it his mind was in travail all that he had learned dropped back into flux his understanding threw up age-old thoughts which he had inherited with youth though they had never before lived with their own fire is it not written that the sun diverts our attention from intellectual to sensual things reason and understanding it is said become so numbed and enchanted that the soul forgets everything out of delight with its immediate circumstances and in astonishment becomes attached to the most beautiful objects shined on by the sun indeed only with the aid of a body is it capable then of raising itself to higher considerations to be sure amour did as the instructors of mathematics who show backward children tangible representations of the pure forms similarly the god in order to make the spiritual visible for us readily utilized the form and colour of man's youth and as a reminder he adorned these with the reflected splendour of beauty which when we behold it makes us flare up in pain and hope his enthusiasm suggested these things put him in the mood for them and from the noise of the sea and the lustre of the sun he wove himself a charming picture here was the old plane-tree not far from the walls of athens a holy shadowy place filled with the smell of agnus castus blossoms 
and decorated with ornaments and images sacred to Achelous and the nymphs. Clear and pure, the brook at the foot of the spreading tree fell across the smooth pebbles. The cicadas were fiddling. But on the grass, which was like a pillow gently sloping to the head, two people were stretched out, in hiding from the heat of the day, an older man and a youth, one ugly and one beautiful, wisdom next to loveliness. And amid gallantries and skilfully engaging banter, Socrates was instructing Baedrus in matters of desire and virtue. He spoke to him of the hot terror which the initiates suffer when their eyes light on an image of the eternal beauty, spoke of the greed of the impious and the wicked, who cannot think beauty when they see its likeness, and who are incapable of reverence, spoke of the holy distress which befalls the noble-minded when a godlike countenance, a perfect body, appears before them. They tremble and grow distracted, and hardly dare to raise their eyes, and they honour the man who possesses this beauty. Yes, if they were not afraid of being thought downright madmen, they would sacrifice to the beloved as to the image of a god. For beauty, my Phaedrus, beauty alone is both lovely and visible at once. It is, mark me, the only form of the spiritual which we can receive through the senses. Else, what would become of us if the divine, if reason and virtue and truth, should appear to us through the senses? Should we not perish and be consumed with love, as Samuel once was with Zeus? Thus, beauty is the sensitive man's access to the spirit, but only a road, a means simply, little Phaedrus. And then this crafty suitor made the neatest remark of all. It was this, that the lover is more divine than the beloved, since the god is in the one, but not in the other. Perhaps the most delicate, the most derisive thought which has ever been framed, and the one from which spring all the cunning and the profoundest pleasures of desire. Writers are happiest with an idea which can become all emotion, and an emotion all idea. Just such a pulsating idea, such a precise emotion, belonged to the lonely man at this moment, was at his call. Nature, it ran, shivers with ecstasy when the spirit bows in homage before beauty. Suddenly he wanted to write. Eros loves idleness, they say, and he is suited only to idleness. But at this point in the crisis, the affliction became a stimulus towards productivity. The incentive hardly mattered. A request, an agitation for an open statement on a certain large burning issue of culture and taste, was going about the intellectual world, and had finally caught up with the traveller here. He was familiar with the subject, it had touched his own experience, and suddenly he felt an irresistible desire to display it in the light of his own version. And he even went so far as to prefer working in Tazio's presence, taking the scope of the boy as a standard for his writing, making his style follow the lines of this body which seemed godlike to him, and carrying his beauty over into the spiritual, just as the eagle once carried the Trojan stag up into the ether. Never had his joy in words been more sweet. He had never been so aware that Eros is in the word as during those perilous, precious hours when, 
at his crude table under the canopy, facing the idol and listening to the music of his voice, he followed Tadzio's beauty in the forming of his little tract, a page and a half of choice prose, which was soon to excite the admiration of many through its clarity, its poise, and the vigorous curve of its emotion. Certainly it is better for people to know only the beautiful product as finished, and not in its conception, its conditions of origin. For knowledge of the sources from which the artist derives his inspiration would often confuse and alienate, and in this way detract from the effects of his mastery. Strange hours, strangely enervating efforts, rare creative intercourse between the spirit and a body. When Aschenbach put away his work and started back from the beach, he felt exhausted, or in dispersion even, and it was as though his conscience were complaining after some transgression. End of chapter 4, part 1